Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am your host, Sean Merwin, here with my inimitable, I think that's a word, co-host, Teos Avadia. Hey, Teos, how are you? I'm doing really well. No one would try because, I mean, why would you try to imitate? Anyway, um, I am back again from travel. I want to stop saying that, and I hope to stop saying it. <laughs> <laughs> here you, we go. Back you from have been a traveling fool uh, in yeah, the last I... few Months, I did so. I did get to see our friend Krishna, and we talked about all things Adventures League. And, oh, uh, nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen Krishna in a dog's age. All right. Well, Krishna, if you're listening, hi. I'm glad you got to talk to Teos, and hopefully, we'll get to talk again soon. And let's get right into it because we have a very interesting um, <clears throat> listener tweet bag this week. The first one is from Andy Demps, a uh, friend of the show, adventure designer, uh, at Andy Demps on Twitter. And he asked this question, um, if the essential game me- mechanism can be reduced to hit point damage or prevention, how do monsters justify their existence beyond the flavor text and a handful of scalable stat blocks? And this goes to our point that we were talking about last week that I brought up about you know, if you try to break down D&D to its essential, what is the game mechanic of it? That That's it. And so Andy asked this very astute question, um, asking the monsters to justify their existence. So we thought it would be a good idea to get an answer from an expert on this. So I am pleased to welcome to Mastering Dungeons a very special guest, Erg the Troll. Erg, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, just stage name. Uh, my real name is Cornelius. Oh, that's fascinating. I guess that makes sense. It must be a union thing. Uh, so did you, you get your formal education in monstering or, or game design? Oh, I misunderstood this. Uh, I didn't go to school for games or acting. Uh, I have an engineering degree from the Colorado School of Mines. You've been in Colorado? Oh, yeah. Colorado School of Mines. That's a very famous engineering school. Yeah. Wow. Nice, nice time of year. Not mines, though. Mines. Yeah, uh, yeah. All that underground living—it sounds like it was in your blood. Well, w- we have you here as an expert in being a monster in D and D games. <laughs> so last week we talked about distilling the essence of D and D as a game down to reducing your enemies' hit points to zero before they do it to you. And this, of course, led to Andy's question about monsters justifying their existence beyond flavor text and scalable stat blocks. So what are your thoughts on that? Can you justify your existence? I mean, it hurt feelings, this question. Uh, you know, as role of Erg, uh, I've appeared in thousands of campaigns over the years. Uh, audition process is grueling, you know, hard work, good work, but being able to regenerate, unless <laughs> fire, I said, don't tell people, but that, you know, overall, uh, gives advantage over an ogre to regenerate. Uh, and rending, oh, so good. Uh, I missed that. There was a time when rend, oh, click, click, boom. That was very good, but it's not part of game anymore. It's a shame. Uh, you should have seen the rending sequences. Oh, splatter, splatter. But claw bite, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that avoiding damage through regeneration and dealing damage through claws and bites is a majority of, of what you're known for in the 5th edition D&D world. 
Uh, it, it typecast, but, but yes, most of my work. Sometimes uh, DM gives me a speaking part. It's a lot of times grrr, go eat you. Uh, it not like, uh, like famous poem, now I slay you, you know, which I think is more what I'd like to do. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't get comedy parts or a lot of interests, though I tell you I am very nice to, I like to curl up, hot mug tea, it's really mm -hmm. good. But, uh, Monster Manual, of course, not mentioned Vaprak, troll deity, when talking about me. Uh, there's a lot to like about Vaprak. People don't mm -hmm. know about his poetry. Yeah, that's too bad. So it sounds like a lot of DMs think of you as something more than a bag of hit points. At least some DMs do, uh, with the fierce claws and the fierce teeth. You know what? What is there more about you that could be in a game? Oh well, monsters like me—great tool for bringing together all parts of the game. We need to have our math work well, of course, to be part of the core rules of the game. Which I mean. Yeah, it's combat, right? I mean, that is, that's what makes us sort of have fun and laugh and feel edge of seat. Uh, but we can also be great elements of world building and storytelling. And like you said last week, when we break down the game to its essence, the player characters, they're the focus. It's fine. I'm okay with that. Uh, it's mostly about whether I can kill them or not before they kill me. Uh, but you know... That's just the role, and it's up to you to decide how deep it goes. Some of the recent books have tried to help with that. Monsters of the Multiverse and others. Um, hmm. Big fan of Brad Ripton's shout out. Mm. So, so how did those other books help you? Mm, well, uh, I get new challenges for my acting skills. Uh, I can be a dire troll in some fights, or a rock troll, venom troll, spirit troll. I mean, I know some of these are reprints, but it brings new spotlight on them. And every new role I take on that's a little different from a typical role troll, uh, role troll, uh, uh, it increases the chances that my own story gets a little more attention. Uh, players maybe think about, like, ooh, why rock troll or venom troll? What does it mean? And uh, DMs may play off of it and create a cool story for it, too, if they take the time. Uh, and there's a little bit of Vaprak in Monsters of the Multiverse, so that goes a long way. Wow, that's that's great. I I'm glad we got a chance to talk to you. This has been really enlightening. Uh, thank you for taking some of your pillaging and slaughtering time to to talk with us. Oh yeah, thanks. It's nice to get out of the cave. I gotta go back to writing my poetry. Mm, excellent. Well, there there you go. Uh, Cornelius uh, came to tell us more about uh, more about monsters and justifying the monsters in the game as more than just a bag of hit points, even though that's what the game is generally about. What, what do you think, Teos? Yeah, that was great. I, my mic wasn't working, so I, was, I was, had a question or two to ask Cornelius, but, um, but no, I thought that was great. Thanks for handling that. All right, and, and thank you for your question, uh, Andy. I, I hope that helps answer your question. Um, we also got a tweet from Rasmus Jorgensen at RasmusNord01. Uh, anyone got experience with epic boons in D&D &D 5e? My instinct is to let players decide and explain why the character got that exact boon, but I need to okay their choice. Uh, mm. So if you're not familiar with what epic boons are, they're, they're justified in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide as a way to give 20th level characters a way to gain more stuff even though they're not gaining levels 
And in theory, they work well. In practicality, in terms of game design, they really don't do much for me. Um, They make sense. Let's give 20th level characters something to feel good about when they do something, when they complete a quest, when they kill a major monster. Uh, But in reality, how often do characters reach 20th level, much less continuing adventuring after they play several adventures at 20th level? Uh, There are other rewards that a 20th level character might like rather than these mechanical boons, Uh, plot-based things, treasure, other other, uh, elements of the game that might be more fulfilling than just these sort of strange mechanical uh, adjustments. And I found many of the boons that are there are either not important or not even remembered among the dozens of things that players already need to keep track of as a 20th level 5th edition D&D character. What what do you, what do you think, Teos? Yeah, I agree with that and it's interesting because these are sort of um I mean not sort of they they are a a evolution of some of what 4th edition provide which had a couple of different categories of these types of rewards, but they weren't just meant for level 20. And I think right. that made them a little more flexible in their design. They often had different power levels you could play with. And I like those a bunch more. In fact, we used them in the Ashes of Athos organized play campaign. The idea that, you know, you could get something that's a reward, but it's not part of a magic item or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and they actually really work as sort of like very minor benefits. And so I like the concept of them. And in fact, if someone were to ask me, you know, what do I do with epic boons? What I would be tempted to do is to say just ditch i mean look at it but don't feel beholden to it somewhat ditch it and instead look at theros where theros has these ideas of as you're advancing the campaign with i think it's your piety or something like it's it's like you know Mm -hmm. there's a separate sort of point basis and don't worry about the point basis but the idea that as you progress in the campaign you are getting these sort of benefits because of the work that you're doing and those i think are a little more the kind of Mm -hmm. interplay that i like that are things that are interesting. Now, I in general have an issue with this concept that is an epic boons of the game should be sort of vastly different at higher levels thematically. And I get that. I get the idea of saying like, oh, we're doing caravan duty at level one, rats in the basement, and then we're doing regional, you know, town things, regional things, and then planar at higher levels. But it's really, to me, it's whatever is fun. And so these boons and things like, you know, owning property or whatever, those are fun at all levels. And and I think by relegating to this sort of concept, it hurts the design of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I read them through, a lot of them were, right, you gain uh, resistance to all damage. Uh, But then there were things that were sort of non-combat focused, like, like the monk has eternal life, right? You can't die of old age. And that was one of the boons. So that's something completely different and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, right? Unless you're fighting a ghost that ages you dramatically and you are a short-lived race, Mm -hmm. then, you know, it doesn't really mean much in terms of what the other boons do. So I love the idea of at lower levels, making it story-driven, giving one of these out to a character in a, as a temporary thing because they did something and it could be positive or it could be negative. It could be, you know, you, you plugged up the portal to the nether world with your head and held it there for, for an hour <laughs> while the other players did a ritual to, to close it permanently. Oh, 
you get this thing and you know maybe other yeah. things happen too or you made a deal with this arch demon uh and so he it gives you this boon but at a later date you uh it will go away and at a later date you will owe this demon something so yeah that's how i yeah. would use these epic boons and i think the dmg has some nice text about the idea of consider its place in your story and world but mm -hmm. then the boons themselves are sort of flavorless i mean your maximum hit points increase by 40. okay you know i'm already mm -hmm. 20th level it's already pretty epic and yeah. if anything the dm is probably struggling with how to challenge the characters so to right. me, it would be, you know, dig into whatever seems interesting and, and mm -hmm. use just as this stuff as the base, like the most basic guideline for kind of concepts, but really work on like, what is the interesting twist? And I would look to more like the fiction and interesting mm -hmm. movies and novels as sort of ideas that if you really want to make things epic or higher level sort of enhancements yeah. to the characters, then that's what I would go with. Right. The first question is, do your characters, your 20th level characters need this to keep interest in their game? And if the answer is yes, then the next question is, well, should we do something different from the game yeah. for the game? If, if they need this to continue to feel fulfilled by the game. Yeah. And, and, you know, the specific question of like whether players decide and explain how they got that boon, I wouldn't do that. Right. Like, like you said, I would dig into the story. Mm -hmm um to have that feel causal and earned and mm -hmm. and and a rich experience right and and that part of that is creating interesting things in your adventures and in your campaign so that there are a lot of interesting choices and some of those can then result in really interesting things right if you activate the idol by making a sacred oath which is what the activation requires you know what is your oath right mm -hmm. if you give something to a fey what did you give right and those kinds of things can change the characters in interesting ways. And that creates a much better story, right? Like if you don't age, like that should have a cool story, not just like, and the, you know, God grants you the ability to never age. Oh, okay. And that's not as interesting as if it's because you gave something up or right. did a very particular thing to, to earn it. And, and mm -hmm. then resonates when it ever it comes up. Yeah. Yep. I, I agree. So thank you for that question, Rasmus. Uh, now let's get into our news and commentary section. Uh, first, D&D is offering classroom programs. It announced a series of free teaching kits that teachers can use to teach language, arts, and mathematics through Dungeons & Dragons. Um, these kits are free to download and include a series of programs and teaching aids for grades 4 through 6, and it's different set for grades 6 through 8. Uh, most of these programs will adapt parts of the new starter set, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, uh, in writing and discussion prompts to help build characters, teach about the world, teach about and math and language fundamentals that the game encourages. Um, they will also be releasing after-school kits, which contain the new Dragon of Stormwreck Isle starter set, along with instructions and guidelines for club organizers, a demo, a learn-to-play guide, easy-to-read character cards, a poster to advertise the club, flyers, and, and all of this is at no cost uh, to the after-school program director. And we put some links in the show notes uh, of the story from comicbook.com and also the direct link to the the goods, the uh the new teaching kits and so on. 
And I think these will be of interest to anybody who's interested in design for new players because mm -hmm. the language that's used in these PDFs, you know, like I'm looking at the, the kit for uh, grades four to six, and it has a neat sort of activity that uh, an educator can take and, and copy, but it's things like, you know, to give to the players as a handout to say, who will your character be? Read this overview, choose a class, what do they look like? And it kind of walks them through sort of choosing things or mm -hmm. how to imagine a part of a world and, you know, design an island. And so there's some really neat concepts here that are fun and the art is, you know, engaging and, and kind of age appropriate and so on. And, and then there's, you know, even an adventure here. And, and so it's, it's kind of cool. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I downloaded the six through eight one and it, I was going to say the exact same thing. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it'd be great even if you are a game designer or if you're teaching new players adults how to play you know even if you don't use the exact material it gives you the concept of what do the players need to know in order to engage with this story that you're about to lead them on so yeah. you know even if you're not a a teacher and you're not running these programs it might be good to just to download and see if there's anything you can use in your games absolutely uh next is a bit of news that is now non-news but still is news so last <laughs> week Last week, the DMs Guild sent out a newsletter, as they are wont to do occasionally, reminding uh, their users that Adventures League bundles, if you buy the Adventures bundled, can save you up to 33%, as opposed to buying each adventure individually. And, okay, that's nice. The bundles have always been there, or they get bundled up pretty quickly after the season ends. So they're there. But then it went well, on actually, to say... Actually, yeah. Sean, I will say they... At some point, they sort of delayed doing that, which I'm not sure okay. that that was intentional. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this, to me, the first thing I read that I was interested in, like, oh, maybe they'll they'll fix the fact that some things weren't available in bundle. And bundles, just to, for folks who don't know anything about them, like, they tend to be like a lot of money, right? Because sure. it's like 14 adventures, each of which normally might be, you know, five bucks or more. And so you end up... Uh, having and some of them are two rounds and so on so, so you end up being a fairly high cost so they give you a discount mm -hmm. to encourage you buying the whole thing because otherwise what people generally do is say hey what's a great adventures league adventure for these kinds of levels and then they buy that individual adventure right yeah and if you have purchased individual adventures from the bundle when you buy the bundle you do not get charged for the adventures that you've already purchased yeah so they took care of that. So, yeah, it's it's good if you know that you want this long uh, season of adventures and they're generally linked thematically, if not plot-wise, you can buy them. Uh, but then it went on to say, make sure you snag individual PDFs from the Wizards of the Coast past Adventures League seasons because individual listings from past seasons will be retired in January of 2023. Now, this surprised a lot of people, especially the Adventures League authors, uh, because Teos and I are some of those people, and we were not aware that this was going to happen. We weren't notified by the Adventures League, by Wizards, by the DMs Guild, by anybody. Yeah. Uh, so within, you know, people were, you know, I think, Teos, you were the one that, that put it out there, so I saw it. And, you know, people were asking me in public and behind the scenes, did you know about this? What do you know about this? And I knew nothing about it. So I was like, well, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's news to me. <laughs> then probably within two hours of me seeing the post, Wizards of the Coast put up a 
blog post on the yawning portal.dnd.wizards.com site where they host their blogs, saying that they were not going to go forward with this plan, nor do so in 2023. Uh, however, they did say that they had considered this move because they wanted to draw attention to newer adventures like the Dungeon Craft adventures and the new adventures that are going to be coming out, which we'll talk about in the next news segment. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll save that. But despite this uh, recanting of retraction, of retraction yeah, uh, what, what do you think, Teos? I mean... You know, my initial thing that, that grabbed my attention when someone shared this news with me, because I, I had not looked at the newsletter, it was sitting there on red in my inbox, was that this really illustrates the peril of platforms and how a lot of times the revenue you receive through a platform, there isn't a really clear contract as to what can and can't happen, which mm -hmm. could vastly change your income. And Sean and I, for most of the, the Adventures League content we have on there, really for all of the Adventures League content I have there, I was paid a rate up front. It's been said publicly, I was paid 500 bucks. And then later the DMs Guild was created and they were like, hey, we're going to do something super nice. We're going to put it on the DMs Guild and you will also earn royalties. So mm -hmm. it was like free money for me. And that has been significant free money, like really good mm -hmm. free money because I get a lot of individual sales. I get a few bundle sales, but it's really about the individual sales. People will ask, mm -hmm. what have you written? Or they'll see the link on my website or someone will say, this adventure is great, go get it. And that generates a sale for me and it's, it's recurring income every month. But, um, and so, so I'm lucky, right? In that this is all just great for me. And thank you, Wizards. Thank you, DMs Guild, everybody who, who decided to go this way. But for somebody who say, wrote their first AL adventure, as a friend of mine did, with Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, mm -hmm. they have not had all that time to get money back and they did not get paid $500. Their money is through the DMs Guild. That is how you get paid. And so if that goes away, that actually means you didn't get paid that much, especially because sales are down. And, and that's behind all of this change is the fact that sales are down new titles are not selling like old titles did for Adventures League. Adventures League used to be like guaranteed money, guaranteed mm -hmm. great money for creators. And it was really, really positive thing. And now it's not, and it, it's especially not with Dungeon Craft, and it's especially not with things that aren't sort of a core season. And mm -hmm. Wizards isn't even doing a core season anymore for Adventures League. Great. So what to do about that? And I think that this decision, I'm glad it was halted because I don't think making it harder to buy other stuff is the solution to driving sales up for new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying there's an easy answer or that, you know, this isn't a hard thing to deal with, but I just don't think that's the answer. And, yeah. um, and so I hope that all of this causes a refocus on, on two things. One is this is like, I don't know, the fifth time that we've seen miscommunication between wizards and DMs guild. So hopefully that gets improved, this, you know, timing of when to say what. Right. Um, but also that I hope they will take a fresh look at what it is that will drive towards better sales, um, which I suspect is is linked to how the market is a little bit drowned in content. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would I would like to say that, you know, look at this miscommunication. They don't know what they're doing. You, Teos, and I have both worked with many large companies. Mm -hmm. I don't consider Wizards a large company. 
Hasbro, I consider a large company. Wizards, right. I consider a mid-sized company. Yeah. There is miscommunication and not knowing what's going on in every single company. Uh, Absolutely. So you know, I can forgive that. Um, and yep. this this industry is still in its sort of formative years mm-hmm. because while it's a large uh, industry, it's not large on the scale of video games or entertainment, movies, TV. Right. Uh, so there there is no standard for how do you pay your <laughs> writers, right? Because yeah. as Teo said, when 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 the Adventures League for Fifth Edition started. They were giving away adventures for free. They weren't yeah. making money on these adventures. So they paid a normal word rate, bought the rights to what, what has been written, and gave the adventures away to game stores, and that was it, or conventions. And you know the DMs Guild changed all that. They had no idea that the DMs Guild was going to be the DMs Guild <laughs> right. uh, when it started. And while they did pay us $500 for those adventures, they made that $500 back in their cut of the royalties many, many times over. So, you know, it's, it's just an interesting world that we live in, in this role-playing game industry, trying to keep track of who owns what, where can you buy what, do we know that it will still be there? And that's not just these adventures, league adventures or the DMs guild content, right? That's the rules themselves. uh, As we go into a digital potentially digital sixth edition uh you know what what is that going to mean so it's all there uh and you could still buy it hopefully you will continue (laughs) to be able to buy it for for a while uh but it all could go away with the snap of a finger um and and that's yeah i mean that is just so difficult for creators to deal with right because it you know imagine that you are writing for one of these new uh plot lines, storylines that we're going to talk about in our next news segment. And you're looking at this story and this development and you're thinking, well, what, what am I going to earn for doing this work? Mm-hmm. And in the past it was like, well, 500 bucks, or it was, you're going to get way more than 500 bucks over time. Adventures league adventures are awesome to write, but then it became, well, it's unclear for something like a Moonshade Isles adventure. You might mm-hmm. get good sales. You might not. It's really hard. There are a lot of factors. Right. And and I think that's really important to look at, right? And I hope Wizards and Adventures League will look at that and say, and even the DMs Guild and say, how, how do we help those sales, but not at the expense of, say, someone who wrote Rhyme of the Frost Maiden or, or even older ones? Because the reality right. is that people do want those. Don't cut off what people want. Let yeah. people buy what people want to buy. But how do you drive greater sales yeah. for this? And what is behind those lower sales? Is it really because old content exists? Cause people love buying new things. I don't think mm-hmm. that's it. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what drives people to buy what you're creating now? And that right. hopefully is the focus, which will then help all your creators and solve all these problems. Right. Right. Problems are easy to solve when everybody's getting money, but you start <laughs> taking money away from people and problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we've been talking about the Adventures League and seasons and how those seasons are sort of going away. Well, Bald Man Games has announced three new organized play storylines. And this is what is going to essentially replace the content that was created directly by Wizards of the Coast and the Adventures League admins. Yeah, and um, for anybody who doesn't know, the way it used to work is like, say, when Rhyme of the Frostmaiden came out as the main storyline adventure, 
then the main season for Adventures League was also Rime of the Frostmaiden, and you got around 14 adventures that sort of created a parallel story. And that was mm-hmm. cool because DMs who wanted to, DMs and players who wanted to do organized play could just do that version of it, right? Mm-hmm. Or they could do both. Or a DM who is running Rhyme of the Frostmaiden could buy those adventures to fun, kind of come up with fun extra storylines and encounters and things like that using mm-hmm. from that content, which I would often do when I ran the hardback adventures. So that's exactly. all going away and yep. being replaced by the following. <laughs> yeah. And even when those seasons were coming out through Wizards of the Coast and the Adventures League admins, Baldman Games and some other organizations, uh, Gamehole Con, Gamehole Publishing, mm-hmm. um, were were allowed to do their own sort of storylines that were separate from the main content, but still Adventures League legal. So what they're doing, what they, Wizards of the Coast and the Adventures League, is doing is putting the onus of creating all the new material on these third-party publishers. Baldman Games um, has already announced theirs. Gamehole Con, Gamehole Publishing has announced that they are also going to be involved, but they haven't put put out a longer press release like Baldman Games just did. So Baldman Games um, will be working on three separate storylines for three separate campaigns. Um, The Moonshay Isles storyline, which is going to be a sort of revamp of the Moonshay Isles adventures that they've already put out. Uh, But it's a new campaign within those Moonshay Isles. The coordinators for the storyline will be Paul Gabat and Savannah Houston McIntyre. They will also be doing the Dreams of the Red Wizard storyline that had been previously headed by the Adventures League admins. Cassandra McDonald and Mitch Smithson will be the coordinators for that. And now they will also be doing a Dragonlance storyline starting in late 2022. The leads for that, the coordinators for that, will be John Christian and Alan Patrick, a former uh, Adventures League admin himself. So all of this will be introduced officially on Sunday, October 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Twitch. So if you want to hear all about that in grim, grisly, vast, and wonderful detail, you can use the official Baldman Games Discord to learn more. Um, You also, if you're interested in this, will want to consider attending Winter Fantasy, which is the Baldman Games official convention happening February 1st through 5th. And Gamehole Con... Uh, Gamehole, again, will be doing their Border Kingdoms storyline, and uh, that convention is happening October 20th through October 23rd of this year. Anything else? Uh, No, no. Very exciting. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be looking forward to these three storylines. I am curious whether three will prove to be too many or Mm -hmm. if that's a good amount of content. Um, I think it's hard to say. We'll see. Yeah. I, I still miss storylines in my brain, but um, also I have loved the Moonshay's storyline. Um, I've enjoyed playing the bits of the others that I've played, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yep. Yeah. I'm uh, super last... excited for the people. Oh. just want to say, yeah. like, a lot of these are folks who have worked hard behind the scenes mm-hmm. at things like Virtual Weekends DMing or in Baldman Games really learning how all of organized play works. And, and so this for, for these people, and congratulations to all of you on being selected for this. 
and and it represents the hard work you've done which is really cool to to get to this point where you understand how organized play works and the storylines and everything that's that's really great right so. I, I was i was pleased that when i read the names i did not know many of them mm-hmm. or not know them personally i knew right. i'd seen their work and they've done good work in the past um so i was happy to see that a bunch of new and different voices are being represented yeah. here by these yeah. coordinators. Uh, very yeah, same. I know a lot of the work that they've done behind the yep. scenes. I've seen their names in that regard, but they aren't, you know, like part of say like a, like a buddy network, right. That like everybody always yep. hangs together at the conventions or anything, you know, it's not necessarily that. And, and so it's great. For it's sure. Good to see. The last bit of news wizards of the coast is hiring for D and D a new community manager and a new producer. Um, no salary information was given on these, but you can find them um, at our on our show notes. We have links to both of those things. Or if you go to Wizards of the Coast website, uh, you can just go to the you know hiring section and see all of the new uh, new and existing jobs that are out there in D and D magic and you know mostly digital now, but still a lot a lot there. Yeah, it's interesting to me that um, people are these days leaving Wizards of the Coast with very little fanfare. So like the producer, I recall, you know, was someone that we talked about on a show not that long ago about Mm -hmm. how exciting it was that they were joining and the background they brought in. And then I just remember seeing them tweet that they were going on vacation and then like their title changed on their Twitter page. And and so that's very interesting that these sort of changes often happen like that, where neither the person nor the company are sort of saying that this person has left, and then yeah. eventually there's a new job posting. Yep, yep. Okay. And I mean, there are rumors swirling, as there often is when a new addition is being worked on, that people are coming and going. Uh, we're going to wait and see if there are any official announcements for some of these rumors, but like I've said many times, this industry is getting more and more interesting. And with the new edition coming up and with D and D getting a higher and higher profile, both in the world of culture and in the world of business, um, it's going to be interesting to see how everything shakes out. Well, let's get into our, let's get into our main topic. Let's talk about D and D the game. We are going now to, a new chapter of the player's handbook and our five E revisited series. This is chapter four and it's all about personality and backgrounds. And we are going to look at those things with the lens of where has the game been? Where is it now? And where could it be going? So chapter four the first, there are three parts of per- chapter four personalities and backgrounds character details, inspiration, and backgrounds. And at first, I read this, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a quick chapter. We're going to fly <laughs> through this. And I was like, wait, let's slow down and let's actually think about this and let's talk about what these things are in the game, what they could be in the game, what they're not in the game. Uh, yeah that they might be in other games and, and so on and so on. So. And the I character because oh, if I could just say like yeah. a lot of editions of D and D did not have this at all or had it in a, in a very different way. 
And, and so it's, it's, you know, we've been at 5e enough years that it's easy to sort of forget how new this section is and what it tries to do and how it goes about it. Right. So let's, let's, uh, do what I always like to do and let's take a step back and say, when I look at this now as a game designer, I'm looking at it through a threefold lens, uh, a three lensed microscope. I don't know. Uh, there's three in there. It's, it's what over each other. I like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what, what are the mechanics? What's the story? How is the story brought out through mechanics? And then what's the world building implications of what you're saying and how does that world building meld with the story and the mechanics of the game? Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, here's what the, the book, the player's handbook says about character details. Characters are defined by much more than their race and class. They're individuals with their own stories, interests, connections, and capabilities beyond those that class and race define. This chapter expounds on the details that distinguish characters from one another, including the basics of name and physical description, the rules of backgrounds and languages, and the finer points of personality and alignment. And, you know, that's that right there covers pretty much everything that they're going to talk about, come, you know, in, in the following chapter. Yeah. Um, and, and then so they even give us, can yeah. I just say, they give us yeah. an example, which which um, throughout the early section, especially in chapter one, but but here and there, they will give us these sidebars that are from the Crystal Shard series of novels with Bruce right. Dorden and the companions. And they give us this Tika and Artemis contrasting characters. Uh, saying that they're both fighters, but look how different they are, which is funny because Artemis is an assassin and was, but was recast right. as a fighter so he wouldn't die and be removed from the right, novels right. when second edition came around and removed all the you know, assassins. But um, but it, it it gives you this example of how different they are, where they grew up, what their background is like, uh, and how they end up being significantly different despite being both human and both fighters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, which which brings me to the other point that I like to make, which is D and D is a, you know, it's a game with a storytelling problem, or it's a storytelling <laughs> game, you know, storytelling uh, narr narrative driving machine with a game problem, yeah. and that's that's the main tension of D and D as a designer is how do you meld those two aspects of it. Yeah. The, the storytelling aspects and the mechanical game portions of it. How do you make them both work together without, okay. without that dissonance overwhelming what you're trying to do? Right. And there are a lot of places here that we're going to talk about where it works well, but there is a lot of dissonance that remains, or there is very clumsy attempts to try to bring the two together where it just doesn't work and it actually makes the differences worse. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so let's, let's go through step by step. Uh, the first character detail they talk about is your name. Your character's race description includes sample names for members of that race. And then it says, quote, put some thought into your name, even <laughs> if you're just picking one from the list. And it's like, okay, why, why do you need to put any thought into it at all? Yeah. Um, it, this is where you could actually say what I just said, right? Mechanically, it probably mm -hmm. doesn't matter what your name is. But yeah. think about the world 
that your character's living in and the stories that you want your character to participate in. Work with the DM to come up with a name that shows that. So all of my players generally choose silly names, (laughs) um, many of which I cannot say on the air. And, And that's fine because that tells me as the DM the type of game they want to play. So it's fine that they choose silly names. Right. Uh, now, if you choose a silly name with a group that wants to play a serious, dramatic, epic tale, that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So that could there there's the opportunity to say this that different people play different ways and show that via this what looks like a relatively simple thing a name. Yeah. There's the chance to show what the game can be for different people, and they don't <laughs> take that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, next, they talk about sex and gender. Um, there are no mechanics tied to sex and gender, as there once was in the history of D and D, as it should be. So, so that's that's fine. Uh, any any thoughts on that? Any notes on that? Um, you know, it's nice that the five E player's handbook uses the example of the god Corallon Lorenthian as mm-hmm. being androgynous and so that there is a lot of flexibility here in how you look at things. And that's a nice way to to provide that example because it's it's sort of canonical. It's the the world is this way, right? So you right. can embrace the world that way. Um yeah, it's fine. I think this is pretty good, actually. I I think you don't want to necessarily. This is not the place to go in deep about the many experiences you can have with gender here, which which are important for characters. And I've had a I've had players tell me how important it was for them to be able to, uh, you know, experience the fluidity of that D and D allows and things like that. And and there are a lot of interesting things you can do in the game with it. But that is probably something to put in the Dungeon Master's Guide rather than here. So I think this is pretty good. Yep. Um, next, it talks about height and weight, and there are charts that you can roll on to, for each race, get your height and weight. Um, you this roll, I think some... it's, it's what, 2D6, I don't have the chart in front of me, I think it's a roll 2D6, and add that to your minimum height, and then you roll 2D4, and you multiply. Varies by race. Yeah. So uh, yes, but varying by okay. race. So like mountain, the dwarves, you add 2D4 okay. uh, the, to your base height. Um, so let's say if you're a mountain dwarf, you're four feet, uh, hill dwarf, you're three foot eight, and then you add 2d4 to that, or you take right. your, you know, the weight of a high elf is 90 pounds as base. And then you multiply that by 1d4. Well, I think you're supposed to multiply the weight by what you rolled as, as the height. So if you roll oh, okay. 2d6 to add to your height and say, you got a seven, then you would oh, roll yeah. the 2d4, multiply that by the seven that you got for your height to add to add that to the weight yeah. so it You're sort right. of it puts in a a, a uh, innate correlation between height and weight which is uh, pretty cool yeah. yeah yeah well i don't know if it's cool uh, well, i think but... it is i mean so i you know this is one of these areas where where we get in we've seen these numbers or this sort of information disappear from recent races ancestries mm-hmm. that are created by 5e so um and and that's very interesting to me because when you have you know a hippopotamus based gif mm-hmm. that we're told can weigh just as much as anybody else, I want to say sure, but also I think that we want to understand how the world generally works, and and mm-hmm. and this is a thing that is 
you know, realistically about the species rather mm -hmm. than not, right? This is not some cultural factor as much as it is a biological one. Um, so I, I kind of like these things and I, I like knowing what the world is, you know, how tall is an elf generally, how short, and it's fine if you want to tell me, well, in this campaign, it's different, but I'd like mm -hmm. to know the baselines and I, and I like having these sort of tables. And I, mm -hmm. I think as a kid, I, you know, and even as an adult, I've, I've enjoyed rolling off of these and decide and, and then seeing what I get and deciding whether I want to go lower or higher with the mm -hmm. number I write. Yeah. And, and I'm the opposite. I, I ask, what does this do for the game mechanically? And if it doesn't really do anything for the game mechanically, then why not just say, here is the average height and weight of an elf. You choose how tall or, or light or heavy or short or whatever you want to be. Um, and just let the player choose. And so that made me ask the question, what mechanically do height and weight mean in the game? Now there's size, right? There's small, medium, large, huge, mm -hmm. etc., uh, tiny. But if most player character races are medium, uh, despite being able to be taller, maybe move things more. So height and weight don't directly tie in anything. Uh, Medium-sized creatures fit in a five by five by five box. Although most medium creatures are taller than five feet. So they could technically reach into the next square above them. Mm -hmm. So that makes every like 3D, yeah. uh, the 3D math mechanical, uh, you know, specifications of the game are already off there. Uh, and weight, we don't get any rules changes based on weight. You can move a medium creature with a, you know, with a push action, whether they're 20 pounds or 400 pounds or larger. Um, now, if they're large size, that changes things. The right. only th way I think I figured out weight might come into it is if you had to be carried and you yeah, used encumbrance. Yeah, or dragging. Um, Some traps will state a weight amount. True. Yep, yep, yep. That's not part of the base rules, but yes, you're right. It will. Um, so, so that you know, that's that's a that's one of those things where reasonable people, and I'm going to assume that Teos and I are reasonable people, can disagree <laughs> on things. Um, and I think we'll come back to the, this sort of do we need this in, in a bit. Um, well, and I don't have an issue with saying here's the average. Do what you will with it. Um, I, but I think that it's about what it tells me around the world. And, and if you tell me a gnome weighs the same as a gif, I, I think the world is, is really weird. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I wait, think... wait, 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 I have to interrupt you there. Are you saying who is telling the DM or the player or what? The game is right. The, the game is, uh, in, as, as newer ancestries come out, they're saying, weigh and, and your weight and height or whatever you want it to be. And there is no average stated often. Mm -hmm. Although I think, I think height or one of them started showing up again recently, but there were a couple of books that came out where the new ancestries had none of this information. Mm -hmm. And, and then just the general text is that you decide what you're like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fine, but I think somewhere one wants to know for the purposes of the world, sort mm -hmm. of how, tall or heavy these things are, right? I mean, like example, right. if you tell me a halfling is short, well, I'd like to know kind of how short. 
just right. talking uh, no. like is a gnome uh, right. taller than a than a uh half elf is a you know hill dwarf taller than a gnome like just some idea right. of those baselines is helpful for the for the world building storytelling aspect of sure. it. sure no i i agree with that i think you know world building all of these things are important for the game master to do sure. if they're building their own world or for the world builder, if it's a published product to say these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I have no problem with average, right? Average is not a average is not mathematically average is not a, an opinion. You, you have, you have yeah. data and you can add all the data up, divide it by the number of <clears throat> entries right. and you get average. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm totally fine with that. As long as the game itself says there are obviously outliers, there are obviously uh, you know, yes, a whole bunch of differences that could be had. So uh, you you choose. Yeah, you and I'm and totally DM down with choose. someone, right. you know, like a, a player saying, I want to play a GIF that's this tiny GIF, mm -hmm. right? Like they are shorter and thin and, and that's the fun I'm having with. And that story is easier to tell when you know what the average is. Absolutely. Because then sure. you're playing against that average. Yeah. Versus like, I'm just looking at artwork and extrapolating from it. Right. But, but, you mm -hmm. know, again, you want to know that, that difference, right. And yep. the tallest athlete, like that can be fun. Yep. Okay. So they, after height and weight, they go to other physical characteristics. And I was waiting for like 27,000 charts here, <laughs> right. Of yeah. what an other physical characteristic might be. You know, I, I have seen so many charts. It's like, where is your tattoo? Where's your birthmark <laughs> chart? Right. I, where is my, I want my birthmark chart uh, in the player's handbook. No, actually yeah. I don't. I was surprised there wasn't. And I was actually okay with that. Uh, yeah. But you know, describe your character. Uh, what's interesting in fiction about characters is how they're different from other characters and what that difference means in and the ongoing story of their lives. And so here I actually wanted more. I wanted, right. I wanted just a bit of how you might do that. And maybe it was there and I missed it, but I, I don't No, so. I, I agree with you. It, 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 it doesn't really tell you what are examples of fun, physical characteristics to mm -hmm. be inspired by and play with. It talks a little bit about the whole Tika and Artemis bit and, and gives examples specific to them. Small man, compact, all wiry muscle. She has mm -hmm. auburn hair, green eyes, fair skin with freckles, a mole on her right hip. You know, those are fun. Um, but uh, what are some other things that I can play off, right? Like my build or uh, my gait, right? Mm -hmm. Or any, any number of things that, that could be here to, to help you flesh out your character. This isn't a how-to. It's just sort of explaining that this exists. And I'd like a little more how-to how -to as well. Yep. But I don't want giant charts and tables, like you said, oh, right? No. Like, I think yeah, that's yeah. that gets too much. And don't, you know, roll to see if you have a scar. Like, no, thank you. I just, yeah. you know, let me decide, but give me more ideas as to what I can do here. Yep. All right. Uh, next is alignment. Now, you and I have had you many, know, I, many discussions. Oh, go, go I'm going to back up and add one more thing, which is one of the sort of secrets of character creation is having factors that lean into your concept. And and that is something that isn't here that could be, right? That mm -hmm. if I am trying to create Artemis, who is a sort of assassin type, having that small, compact, compact wiry muscle build leans into that story and furthers it, right? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. or I might have a build that plays against what my character concept is so that there's a contrast there. That kind of thing also would be nice to have in somewhere in this chapter. Mm -hmm. I remember playing an assassin in a first edition game and the DM made us roll our height and weight on a table. And my assassin ended up being like seven. It was a human, but he was like seven foot four and 120 pounds or something ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I was like, my, the whole point of me playing this assassin was somebody who blended in and wasn't <laughs> noticeable. And then I roll like this thing that is so outside of the average. But since the DM forced me to roll it, I had to end up playing with it. And it, I tried to make it work, but it just wasn't fun yeah. after yeah. a while. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel that. <laughs> All right. So next is alignment. Mm. And Teos and I famously disagree a bit on this topic uh, mm -hmm. about what alignment is, what it means, how useful it is. Uh, I don't know if we need to go into it any more than, than we already have. Uh, if you want to say anything about it, feel free, but I reserve the right to tell you how wrong you are. Well, I, I think a question is, there, well, a question is, should this even be in here? I think we've talked about that before mm -hmm. uh, on the show. Um, what is given here is, a, is it's interesting because all the editions have sort of different takes on how they portray it and explain it. Yep. And the attempt here is to say the name, the abbreviation, and one sentence, maximum two of what it means, and then to say, this type of creatures are usually this alignment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that would be something that I would strongly revisit if I was writing this uh, section. And, and I think that's probably where we can keep it here. That's just, it's really obvious that, that alignment is tenuous on a tenuous hold mm -hmm. <laughs> with any future edition. And you'd want to really look at, how, if you're going to use it, what are you trying to tell with it? Mm -hmm. I will say, and I've said this before, this is where I think you and I really agree is I really believe that you can take most players out there that are playing fifth edition and say, out of the blue, just say, what's your alignment? And they won't know if, unless they mm -hmm. look at their character sheet and they might have to look at their character sheet to remember where it is. As I did right. this weekend, I was like, oh God, what is my alignment? And I right. couldn't find it. <laughs> yeah. And, so, so that's where, you know, I think we both agree. This is a section that needs strong work and you'd want to have a couple of meetings on this minimum to design an approach around it. Yep. Uh, next is languages. Uh, you know, what, what languages can your character speak? Uh, and my thought on this is how often do languages come up in games? Um, we talked about this on the Eldritch lore cast last week. Somebody asked a question about languages. And while it might be interesting for world building, it might be interesting for storytelling possibilities, um, how often does it come up and how often do players want it to come up where because they speak a specific language, they get a bonus or because they don't speak a specific language, there is a consequence to that. So I just had that happen this weekend. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday, I played a game with Keith Amon, uh, sort of play testing or, or previewing the, the layers that he's creating in his upcoming book. Okay. And we did not know what we were going into ahead of time. So we made characters and we tried to have a spread of languages because we thought, you know, we may need information mm -hmm. from people. And that was all very sound thinking. 
But then when we knew suddenly what layer we were going up against, when that was revealed, uh, the people who were the most persuasive or, you know, otherwise capable of, of speaking to characters were not the ones that spoke that language. Mm -hmm. And it was a big hindrance. In fact, it's probably the main thing that we failed at was that ability to interact with them, even though mm -hmm. I had a helm of comprehend languages and there were a number of things we just couldn't get information from these creatures at mm -hmm. the times that we needed them. And so it was yeah. quite critical. And it reinforced to me something that I've often felt with fifth edition as compared to third, where there are very few languages you learn and you don't get more over time generally. Mm -hmm. And the creatures are so broad in what may appear in a and d game that there, you can almost, there's no good math on, you know, the, the, it'd be a bad Vegas bet to bet that your character is going to speak the language that will be useful. Right. Right. And yeah. that to me hurts the design of it when there's sort of no reason why I'm picking anything, no benefit from it. It won't help the interactions there. Yeah. To me that all of this, I would want to look at and, and re-engineer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, it, it, you could run a really fun encounter, a really fun, um, you could have really fun interactions because of language uh incompatibilities right well, only one character can speak to the celestial and he's uh or she is not uh translating but, correctly for the party uh, right yeah, yeah right so you could have some fun role playing yeah, uh, but yeah. th what this language thing does to make it work is forces the dm to figure out how to make how to reward characters who might spend resources to get the extra language or how to have consequences that are reasonable for players that don't. And what's reasonable for one person is not reasonable for another. Oh, you failed the entire mission because nobody spoke dwarf. Right. Oh, you know, is that something that ADM would want to do and players would be happy about? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough, but, but, um, you know, and, and that's where the DM side of things, we could, I, the game can easily have good advice for that, but it's telling to me that there is a flaw on the player side of things as to these choices that sort of the list of languages is too big. The applicability mm -hmm. is too low and I would want to change that. So either grant more languages, which third edition, I think had the problem of it almost everybody was a linguist, right? Or, or, mm -hmm. or many characters were linguists, especially right. with high intelligence scores. Yep. And so yep. then it became almost implausible. It's one thing when the wizard does it, but when, you know, a lot of random people would just have a lot of languages. Um, or you have to change how monsters speak things. And, and so it, it's an interesting issue here. Um, yeah. I think also, if I'm a new player, a lot of these languages, I don't really understand the choices I'm making. Mm -hmm. And, right. and so maybe I'm forcing some choices here that not only do they not really carry great mechanical weight or importance, but I don't even have the basis for making these choices. Mm -hmm. uh, more experienced players can probably go like, well, there's often stuff written in an abyssal or infernal. Mm -hmm. you know, so, and, and that, that, that brings that up a good question. Do, do you, do you create a system where there are certain languages that you can talk with anybody? 
it's sort of like a common, but like elf, dwarf, orc, gnome, halfling. You can communicate even if you don't know the other languages. There's a second tier of languages, draconic, giant, so on and so on, that you can't take at first level unless it is specifically given to you. Then there's a third tier of languages, abyssal, infernal, celestial, where you need a specific, there's only one way to get it. And it's a class feature or a feat, and that's it. And then you can say, all right, now in my design, I'm going to make sure that if somebody has those tier three languages, they're going to be rewarded for doing that in the adventure that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the last thing that we will talk about today are personality characteristics. Um, th- this is the personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws that made their first appearance on the front of the character sheet for fifth edition. Um, mm-hmm. So what I I want to reiterate what I said earlier is that really good fiction uses these characteristics as a way to heighten the drama, the comedy, the tragedy of stories that you tell, right? Hamlet is indecisive. So therefore that whole story plays mm-hmm. out for that reason, mm-hmm. right? Uh, hubris, uh, you know, all of these things that the fatal flaw that someone might have is important. Uh, the three stooges and Abbott and Costello and dumb and dumber, right? They're, they're, they're not intelligent and they succeed because that they aren't intelligent. Mm-hmm. It's not, they don't just overcome it. That is their trait. Right. So comedy counts on that, right? So all of these things are super important for the storytelling portion of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's good that they tried to add that. It's good that they added them. I'm not sure if they were put to the best use they possibly could have been. Um, no, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think there are a number of things going on here that weaken the effect of the design. Um, one is there's just too many of them. Mm-hmm. You generally have two personality traits, an ideal, a bond, and a flaw. And that is more than even the player can remember, but the DM Mm. will find it impossible to remember all of these across even four players, let alone six. Mm -hmm. And even if you write them down on a spreadsheet and tape it to your DM screen or whatever, you are going to struggle to play off of them because Mm -hmm. even the players aren't remembering them well. Right. And so, and so the, the system just breaks down uh, it stops being a tool mm-hmm. and it stops being influential or fun to play off of, uh, beyond maybe the initial exercise of a player thinking through who their character is, but, but they're not good tools. And so I would love to see these revised. And if I were working on an edition, a new version of five E, I would do away with these and mm-hmm. recast them. I might keep one or two. Um, but I would change this and, and I would look at you know, this is already an attempt to sort of use things that I think we learned from other RPGs, mm-hmm. especially indie type games. Yep. But, but I think that analysis should be redone to look at newer examples and even old examples and right. draw a different type of, um, yeah, put together a different type of thing here. Like if I look right. at 13th age, one unique thing that is far more effective for a way that a, char- a player will convey who their character is 
constantly throughout the game and everybody at the table understands it and the dm mm -hmm. certainly understands it far more effective and it's just one thing to remember uh yep. and so just i think that that's the kind of thing that i would want the team to relook at and, and redesign yeah. Yeah, I, I I think they I think they made steps towards that by tying it to inspiration, by tying these mm -hmm. things to inspiration. Um, but I think it was sort of a half measure or maybe even a quarter measure. Um, and, and like you said, the game didn't. The game didn't go far enough in tying these things to the mechanics, like in fate. All of these mm -hmm. things, the personality traits, ideals, bonds, flaws, these are all called aspects in fate. Yeah. And the way that you use these, these are these are the way that you gain benefits. These are your stats almost <laughs> in, in fate. Yeah. So if your personality trait is right, hot-tempered and quick to act, you can use that to say, since I'm hot-tempered and quick to act, I'm going to use this fate point to gain this bonus. Yep. And the game itself relies on you using that bonus. You're not going to succeed unless you are using those bonuses constantly. Yeah. Uh, and those can be used against you by the DM, to, or by the game master in this case, to get those fate points back after you've used them because the game master can say, well, since you're, you're hot-tempered, temp I think that you would attack this guard for insulting you, um, and then you'll have to deal with the consequences, but here's your fate point back that you can use later. And the inspiration mechanic, which we'll talk about next week in, in, yeah. in detail, was that quarter measure to try to use it. But since since D&D &D is such a different game, all the inspiration is is give me inspiration please so i can gain advantage and then use advantage incorrectly to gain a really huge reroll benefit right. and it sort of lost its connection to to this should be what the character is playing who the character is yeah no i agree a absolutely it, it it is in theory a one-two punch like fate has but it is not at all in fifth edition. It is not at all uh, an effective thing. And, and all of how inspiration is wired fails to really pivot or play off of these personal characteristics. And, and so it all just ends up being background that you know, like it's, yeah. it's not even, you know, it's not even nothing comes to the surface of play. It is literally background, yeah. but forgotten background. Mm -hmm. And, and I would want to really strongly look at redoing these things if, if, uh, if, if there's a new edition, I, I don't know yep. if they will, because it, it, it the language and, and it's amazing the amount of real estate devoted to this, like this section in chapter four is not so big when it comes to personal characteristics uh, in this part. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the actual backgrounds themselves, right. each one comes with tables for all of these personal characteristics, which is an enormous amount of real estate being devoted mm -hmm. to it. And then the DMG refers to these same types of personality traits as ways to flesh out NPCs, not that they get inspiration or anything like that, but it's a way to, to define them. Yeah. And so it's actually a really big kind of section, number of pages uh, mm -hmm. for what it does, which yep. is always bad when you do enormous amounts of real estate for something no one is really using. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm sure with the designers who are there right now that I know of, 
You know, they know about these games, these other games. They know all of this that we're talking about. And it's a question of whether they will be allowed to fix this in the upcoming edition. Uh, hopefully they will. Yeah, I hope they do. I mean, there, there are always reasons why you may say, well, this is too fundamental a change when we're not doing a completely new edition or something. You know, there can be reasons why you choose to shy away from it. But but I would I would lean towards wanting to do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for, I mean, yeah, I mean, I could think of some really strong. You can't use any of your class abilities unless you are unless you are playing your character. Right. That's that becomes a thing. That now players are paying attention. Now DMs are paying attention. But that is a huge, huge right. change in the game that no one would, no one would accept. And that's, I think, the fundamental question of what this particular section around personal characteristics must answer in the in, a, in any future edition. Uh, is this? an aid to is this process content whatever just helping me make an interesting character because there are a lot of ways to do that mm -hmm. right and i don't know that this does that uh particularly well uh is it trying to create mechanics like you talked about not the story but the mechanics that will propel certain types of play and engagement it's mm -hmm. not doing that well but right. it could mm -hmm. and how to go about that so that it feels fun and great like it does in fate but doesn't feel problematic like it does when you tell the paladin that they're going to, you know, forever lose their powers because they did a thing that the rest of the party is telling them to do, right? That, right. You want yeah, to, yeah. how do you balance that out, right? And sure. great games that do things like inspiration or flaws or things like that are things where it feels like really quick and fun. And you're like, oh, wait, I, you know, I've got a career in this thing. I want to make this thing happen in this scene. Mm -hmm. You know, or, ooh, you know, swinging from the rope should actually be easy for me because of the following thing. And yeah, absolutely. Great. Go for it. Right. You get a little benefit to chuck mm -hmm. in and, and your die roll is better. Right. What that thing is um, can can function a lot of different ways. You can design it a lot of different ways. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't see it here. Awesome. Well, that is our time this week. Next week, we will finish this chapter talking about inspiration and backgrounds and get into more news and views. So, Teos, thank you for sharing some time with us yet again. Thank you, Sean. And thank you to all our listeners out there, and thank you to our patrons. You can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find your work on the socials? Uh, well, you can find me at alphastream.org. Uh, you can also find me through the link on alphastream.org on YouTube. This week, I am going to create another success in RPGs. Um, mm -hmm. So that'll be fun. It's going to be on freelance rates. So I think it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. I don't want to spoil whether they're good or not. You know, right. you'll have to watch to find out. How about you, Sean? Where do we find <laughs> you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast Twitter at Mastering D and D. Uh, you can hear our voices in many places, including hopefully on YouTube with the Misdirected Mark YouTube channel. So, Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. Hey, Teos, we have you know we've talked to Cornelius. We have talked all about traits for characters. What are we going to do now? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to go hang out with Cornelius and write some troll poetry. I think that's a great idea. He had a lot to say. Mm -hmm.